When children form a close connection with nature, they become the next stewards of the earth. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Jodie Salmon from Reef Check, an organisation using citizen science to inspire positive action for our reefs and oceans. Before we start this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we work, the Kabi Kabi and the Gubby Gubby people. I'd like to recognise their continuing connection to the lands and waters and thank them for protecting this coastline and its ecosystems since time immemorable. I'd like to pay my respects to our elders past and present and those that are emerging. And I'd also like to extend that respect to all of our First Nations peoples listening today. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education and stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family. Each week, we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled. We're your hosts, Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in and join us on this next adventure. Hello and welcome to the Raising Wildlings podcast. I'm your host today, Vicky Oliver. Now, if you're loving the podcast, we really encourage you to like and subscribe. That way you get your weekly dose of our amazing guests uh, delivered straight to your podcast recorder of choice uh, so you don't miss an episode. And if you particularly like something that you're hearing during our episodes, we love to see you sharing those. It just means more people get to see what we're chatting about, which means we get more kids outside in nature, which is what we're all about. Now, on today's episode, I'm talking to Jodie Salmond. She is a fellow marine lover, biologist. Uh, she's a researcher specialising in citizen science for Reef Check. They're also dedicated to conservation biology and reef ecology. Now, under the water, she trains divers in global reef health monitoring protocols. And above the water, she engages and inspires through hands-on research, education, and personal development to encourage everyone to become the best versions of themselves and to look after the planet. Today, we're going to talk all about how science isn't just something that happens in the lab and how we can get involved to help our reefs and oceans to thrive. It's so lovely to meet you. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. You're very welcome. So um, one of the things I've been thinking about is the fact that we often talk about children when they have these experiences as um, in nature, they often go on to become our environmentalists, our scientists, the people who are pioneering change in our natural world. Do you want to tell me a bit about how your upbringing or your experiences with the wild has shaped where you are now? Uh, so I was pretty lucky. I was a bit of a beach baby. So I have travelled around the world quite a bit and lived in lots of different parts of Australia and internationally, but I came home to where I originally was based, like literally living just a few doors up from where I originally grew up. Oh, wow. So I spent a lot of time at the beach. So I was always surrounded by water. I never had a fear with water. Um, and I certainly grew up climbing trees and loving it. And it's really quite interesting when you have the opportunity to kind of reflect. Mm. And I realised that uh, I, I'm acrobatics as a bit of a part-time sport oh, cool. and I'm a marine scientist. So it's like, right, so all that tree climbing and playing in the rock pools <laughs> has kind of uh, really come back full, full fold as an adult. So I guess for me, just the ability to be out in nature really shaped it, the ability to um do whatever I felt like, but within mm. that nice uh, connected way. So I think that's really, really key for where I'm at now. And a lot of individuals is the ability to genuinely connect with the world around them mm. has really shaped how they feel about it and obviously uh, driven their passion to protect it as well. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. So uh, I'd love to hear more about Reef Check. Can you tell me about what it is that you do? Um, and yeah, I, I absolutely love what you guys do. So if you could share that with us, that'd be great. Sure. Uh, so Reef Check Australia is a charity. We're a not-for-profit group that essentially trains recreational divers to go out and monitor the reef for signs of reef health. So that's the core of what we do is Mm -hmm. we go out, check on these reefs and document its health back to local resource management bodies, to local communities and to both national and international government bodies as well. Um, It started off in way back in the day. So it started in 1997. Oh, wow. Essentially what happened is a group of scientists sat down and said, hey, what is the state of the world's reefs? And nobody could actually answer the question because mm. um, who, if anybody's ever done science before, everybody has a different methodology. Mm. So the concept of reef check overall has come about by saying, hey, we actually need a global standard and that way we can actually compare reefs from here to anywhere else in yeah. the world. So that's kind of where it started. Um, from there in Australia, we wanted to do things just a little bit differently. So we actually added a heap more categories. So we go into a little bit more in depth than other countries do. Um, And that was because of partnerships with groups like the Australian Institute of Marine Science, CSIRO, local universities like James Cook and the University of Queensland, Mm. several other biologists that were kind of in on the game and giving us feedback to make sure. Um, And then since then, we've, we've grown to a point where we bring in ambassadors or community volunteers that might not want to get in the water, but instead land-based, they're still really passionate. They really want to teach people about it. Um, and so that's another component. And we also do reef mentors. So we mentor these community groups again and those individuals because it's all really about having local heroes everywhere, right? Yeah, got a local absolutely. Hero, we want to get to them and help them do what they can in their natural environment as well. That's amazing. And I think that our reefs off the southeast Queensland are completely underrated. And I would imagine that a vast majority of our population actually don't know what exists out there. So for those people that don't, do you want to describe what we find off southeast Queensland and specifically the Sunshine Coast? Yeah. So for starters, I would definitely agree with you that our reefs in southeast Queensland are certainly underrated. Um, If we actually look at data from over 20 years that we have collected, we can prove that the reefs off the Sunshine Coast or off southeast Queensland are actually better than reefs in the Caribbean in terms of the biodiversity. That's so cool. It's a really cool fact, right? Yeah. Um, What's called subtropical rocky reefs. So if you think of the Great Barrier Reef, everybody knows the Great Barrier Reef and it's made of lots of coral and that's both hard and soft coral. And so when a reef builds, it's got hard coral that grows on top of hard coral on top of hard coral. For us in southeast Queensland, we do have one reef that's the closest to a, a barrier reef or like a, a true coral reef that you will hit, which is Flinders Reef. My favourite. Um, yeah. yeah. Beautiful spot. Yeah. Uh, but what we have is these subtropical rocky reefs. So really important mixing zones. But they're all rock. And then there's a lot of hard and soft corals that grow on top of it. Yeah. The issue with that is that because there's so corals that if something happens and those soft corals disappear because they're soft and they don't have that hard skeleton there's nothing really left of them and so then it has an opportunity for algaes etc to come in and take over as well so that's when we can see that direct impact we see like that change from being uh, a, quite a varied substrate to a lot of algae yeah correct. Is that one of the characteristics yeah yeah, and we have lots of different algae. So without going into depth in algae, because they're really fascinating in themselves, mm. 
But we do have what's called a macro algae, and that's quite seasonal. So it's these really big fleshy algaes, mm. and some of them I certainly think will change the world. Um, and we've got a little bit of research projects going on with those, which is a whole separate entity. Yeah, cool. Um, but, and we've also algaes like nutrient indicator algaes. So generally, when we have outpourings from our natural water sources, so up river, if there's too much nutrients in that or from these big floods, et cetera, Blood plumes are coming out. They can create uh, excess nutrients, which means more algae actually comes in and can smother that coral. And we can see it directly, even if you're not seeing the algae just yet, you can see it when you go for a dive or snorkel and the water's really green and murky and a bit like pea soup at times as well. Yeah, and that's been like obviously since the floods and, and a lot of rainfall that we've had, I've noticed that the clarity of the water hasn't really improved Oh, like a lot, yeah. like it still seems to be quite green and, and mil- milky or just not what, we've, what we're used to around here. So they can have such a long-term impact, can't it? Most definitely, and especially on the, on the health of those corals. So regardless of whether they are soft or hard corals, all corals actually need light to photosynthesise as well. So there's mm. tiny little algae that live inside them are actually a symbiotic algae. Mm. And without the algae, corals can survive, but not for a really long time. Um, so unless they have an opportunity to get better, then it makes it really tricky. Now, the issue is that when we have back-to-back floods or bleaching events or cyclones or all of these other natural disturbances, there's not actually enough time in between them for these corals to replenish mm. and actually get better. So it's kind of like us when you get a cold and then you think you're okay and you go back out and then that cold kind of hangs around for a bit and then it's easier to get sick again. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's quite devastating. I know that I'm starting to see a little bit of an impact in places like Shelley Beach. Um, seeing a lot, of, like a lot of the blue soft coral, um, isn't isn't there as much, and um, yeah, it's it's really devastating to see those changes over time. But also sometimes it can be really um, heartwarming when you start to see things coming back and and growing, which is great. So as citizens, tell us about citizen science and what we can do to help. So citizen science is exactly what it sounds like. It's citizens doing science. So you don't have to have a science background, but the idea is that you do just want to lend a hand. So sometimes that's as simple as a beach cleanup. Now, it's really nice when everybody wants to go out and pick up rubbish, but what's really important is when we document what we find. And that's the science part of it, because with documenting anything over time, we can start to understand any of those influences and changes. And especially with marine debris or rubbish on the beach, et cetera, we can actually start to look at source reduction plans. And that means, hey, if you start to find lots and lots of straws everywhere, which has happened previously, then there's changes to people go, hey, maybe we shouldn't be using these plastic straws. Mm. So the idea of citizen science, essentially, like I said, citizens getting involved in, in amazing ways. In terms of what we can do or each individual can do, it's as simple as understanding what you want to do for starters and then mm. reaching out to different groups. So for Reef Check, we have different kinds of cleanups. You can join us on the beach sometimes if that's what you want. We do in-water cleanups, so going for a dive and cleaning up set areas. Uh, but we also do different monitoring. Mm. Or if none of that is is interesting, then we also have these Reef Ambassador courses, which just tells you more about the uh, the reef structures in our local environment. And then it also talks about behaviour change and how you can make an impact in your local community as well by impacting and influencing and helping people empower them to make the right changes. I think that's really cool because a lot of the time science seems like, um, and even for me, like I did a science degree, uh, and sometimes it seems really complicated, but realistically science can be done in so many ways, like you're saying, streamlining the process across the world because, 
you know, if you've got different ways of measuring and studying things, then it's harder to compare. But I love the fact that this is something that anyone can get involved in in a capacity that feels like they can. And I love this for kids as well so that I can actually see that there is a valuable contribution that we can make, which is a, such a fantastic thing for children to be involved in, but also adults as well because I know that um, we all want to be able to feel like we're doing something to help, especially if this is something that resonates with you. Um, I'd love to know um, if you've had any I imagine you've had lots of really cool, amazing diving experiences. Um, do you want to tell me about some of your most memorable diving moments? Oh, I've had some really fascinating diving moments, that's for sure, or at least in water. One of the most memorable experiences was in Mozambique. So I lived there for two years as a whale shark researcher and turtle researcher. And I remember a particular day when um, we were going out on the boat and but to find whale sharks, you think they're really big animals, so you should be able to find them quite easily. Um, but you do need a spotter mm. and you need to look for a certain pattern. So whenever there's uh, when there's a lot of waves, it makes it harder. Um, if it's if it's not sunny enough, it makes it harder because there's no clear uh, difference in the colouring. So there's all these different things that you have to keep in mind. Mm. And this particular day, it was the third trip. We usually only ever do two on a day. And these people were really, really interested. And they're like, come on, we're leaving the country tomorrow. Can you please take us out anyway? So we took them out and all day we hadn't seen anything. So we've been on the boat for hours. Mm. And this boat was for our trip. We we started, um, the boat started kind of going around the corner. And within a few hundred metres, we saw the first fin. We were like, that's a win because I haven't seen anything all day. And it was raining by this stage. It was quite cold. Oh, wow. There's a fin. And then there was another fin and another fin and another fin. And all of a sudden the entire ocean was just filled with these whale shark fins. So we're like, wow. right, we're going to jump in and grab some photos. And not a single person wanted to jump in the water because there was too many whale sharks. Too many. Uh, but I jumped in. Too many. I jumped in anyway and we had 45 that we what? counted. It was a feed. Frenzy, yeah. Oh, that oh, would have been quite large awesome. males. So amazing, really cool. All males were they? Yeah, all were males. So it was only the second time it had ever been documented in the area. So very cool to be a part. Wow, it is. And I, I always say, uh, experiences that you have in the ocean with animals are so different to on the land. Number one, we tend to get so much closer to the animals than you do on the land, and they there's just something about I guess the sensor experience of not you can't really hear anything so like all of your your senses are focused on what you can see around you and you have to be so switched on but I I mean I've only dove there were two whale sharks um off uh, on Cocos Island in Costa Rica we were actually diving for hammerheads and um my husband was madly trying to get my attention and two were just swimming past and one of them was pregnant and it was just one of the most like they, those, they're imprinted, imprinted on your mind like you'll never, ever forget. And I've actually got my wow shark leggings on. I love them so much. They're one of my favourites. Um, but, nice. yeah, I can totally imagine. What about um, experiences with dive? Like how do you go with citizen science, like with the divers? Do you have a rigorous training program for them to come and help or is it you just need the help and so you just have to because diving can be tricky <laughs> with people. People and divers. It can. So, yeah. And it really depends on what people are after. So if they if people want to join us for a cleanup dive, it's a little mm. bit different. So you still have to be an advanced open water diver and have at least 30 dives under your belt because it means that obviously you can dive safely, you know yourself as a diver. Yeah. Um, and so we do have some very stringent 
for a reef check diver, you need to have quite a few more hoops to jump through. Mm -hmm. So we do ask people to be an AQF rescue or above, um, which is the Australian qualification framework. We have over 30 dives as a minimum as well. Um, And then there is a four-day training course that we run as well as a part of the identification. And that's because we're looking at over 25 different substrate categories, over 13 different fish species, other 10 invertebrates and about 10 impacts as well. So although you'll only be required to do one of those tasks most days, that's still quite a bit of task loading. So even just holding an underwater slate with an underwater piece of paper in there and making sure you do not lose those things Mm. is just one more thing. So for us, the reason that the training is so important is one, because our data actually does go into a variety of different areas. So people utilize it. So it is used by natural resource management bodies, by government agencies. Yeah. So we've got a 93% accuracy rate on any of the hard corals, which is really high. And that's been documented through peer-reviewed papers. Um, so there's that component. But then the, there's the whole safety aspect as well. We want everybody to have a good time, but make sure that they can do it safely and within a set time. Yeah. Because there's a lot to think about for divers under the water. Definitely, yeah. The first one is like, yeah, getting comfortable in there, right? Not everybody feels comfortable in the water. Yeah. Considering such an open space, so many people feel really claustrophobic in it. Yeah. So it's battling that in yourself. Yeah, and like just keeping your gear and, your, um, and you know, making sure that you're not damaging the coral, that you're there to, to protect and making sure your buoyancy is correct and all of those things. So I'm in awe of you know, the research that's being done, I think that it's so, like, it's so phenomenal and so um, positive to know that there is this direct, you know, all as you said, that this data is going in so many places and it's so great to know that some, like a non-profit organisation has been able to come together and do that. So you guys are just doing such amazing work. Um, do you want to talk to me a little bit about microplastics? I know that this is something that is, um, probably not a, a new phenomenon, but that it's come into our, you know, consciousness that we need to be careful about. What sort of impacts are we seeing with microplastics in our environment? So microplastics are absolutely everywhere and essentially that's the issue. So this concept of plastics breaking down is actually a really incorrect thought and what we've been told to kind of reframe in the last amount of months, years, et cetera, is this idea that it's breaking up. So you're breaking into smaller and smaller pieces. The issue with that, of course, is if you've got a really big piece of plastic, you can quite easily remove it if you Mm. see it. Um, We use polystyrene as an example. And the reason I'll bring that up is simply because those March floods, the February floods, um, we had so many uh, pontoons actually wash out of the Brisbane River Mm. and both north and south. So Gold Coast got a few of them but a lot of them actually came all the way up towards the Sunshine Coast. Mm. So what we were finding is massive pontoons washing up on beaches. Now, when they're that size, yes, you can remove them. There's a whole other slew of things that need to happen to actually physically remove them, but at least it's one piece. Mm. What was happening, though, is because long periods of bad weather, these massive structures were breaking up into smaller and smaller pieces. And so now if you go down the beach, and what's this? This is September, so this is, Months later, Mm. what we're finding is tiny, tiny pieces, those little balls of polystyrene now, which are having that impact. So before when it was big and we could potentially remove that and it's less of an issue for a lot of animals, what's happening now is that it's really, really lightweight. It's absolutely everywhere. It gets into all the the nooks and crannies. It's being and captured. And, of course, all these animals are eating it. Birds are eating it because it's white and it's floating on the surface. Fish are eating it. 
So all of a sudden we're finding all of this plastic, not just in our local environments, but we're starting to find it in our food. We're Mm. finding it in our air. We're finding it in our rain. And that's because smaller and smaller, tiny, tiny particles are just breaking into smaller pieces, which means we physically cannot capture it. No. And even things like we haven't thought about, like washing machines, unless you have a, a retrofitted filter on a washing machine, all those tiny micro particles that are actually shedding from your, your clothing, clothing, if you've got polyester, yeah, is going into the water as well. So it is actually a really big issue. Um, it's something that's extremely scary. So I guess mm. from our perspective, we're always trying to push the idea of the hopeful aspect, right? Yeah, you don't always. want to get too bogged down. Yeah. Really sad. So, yeah. so what are the simple things that we can do that will make a big impact if we all do it? And that's what we, we, we are really trying to focus on. Yeah, and I think that that's what people, you know, um, will switch off because uh, it's just like yeah. that trauma of everything at once. So instead it, we, we do need to focus on what, what can we do. So with microplastics, what's some simple things that we can do right now that will be making a difference? For starters, what we can do is if you are in charge of buying clothing, so a couple of things. A, you can actually buy secondhand, so utilise things from the, from op shops, et cetera, yep. um, and that's because therefore you're not using virgin materials. So that's the first part. And also um, it has, studies have shown that some older clothing actually have stronger bonds in the way that the clothing mm. might, which means less shedding in the long term. So none of that, that fast fashion. So, again, yeah, so with clothing I would certainly say wash less regularly if you can yeah um and we we know you can tell whether you need to wash an item of clothing or not so really and that it doesn't have to be every day buy secondhand certainly and then if you have the option always look at those natural fibers instead because although natural fibers will break down they will actually break down into their natural components rather Mm. than these micro particles of plastic so that's a big one and another one is really just say no to single-use plastic so every mm. time you go somewhere, just think about it. Like if your parents or if you buy a cup of coffee, do you need a takeaway cup? Can you spend five minutes and sit down and enjoy it? Or if you can do neither of those things, if you don't have your own keep cup, can you just say no this one time? Because maybe that's the lesson for you to go, oh, yeah. you bring one next time. That's right. Really simple ones, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's just like those few little switches at a time. And then when you've got the capacity, you can start to think of more ways in which you can make those changes. But I think that's the key. Um, I know particularly for a lot of our listeners are mums and it's busy and we all know that we want to be making a difference, but it can be really overwhelming with all of the things. So it is just those little simple things to just remember. And I, I mean, even I just keep thinking about like with the clothing for kids as well is that if if they if you want them outside and to be moving and to not be restricted and not to worry about whether it's going to get dirty, then you should be looking at all the clothing op shops and and then that way we're we're doing you know we're targeting lots of things at once. We're allowing our children that freedom to explore and move and and not be worried and and being confined by what they're wearing. But at the same time, we'll be helping our environment because hopefully we're not you know, emitting more of those microplastics and and all of the other slew of things that come from fast fashion and all of those things as well. And they're really great tips. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm going to wrap up our uh, interview with a few rapid fire questions. So um, what's your favourite book of all time or a book that you think our listeners would really benefit from knowing about? Oh, my favourite book of all time is actually The Alchemist. Oh, someone Um, else has mentioned that one. Oh, beautiful. It is such a simple book. The idea is you can actually read it really quickly 
Mm. But the concept behind it is beautiful. It's it's essentially saying that there there are messages everywhere, and unless you're ready to hear them, you'll never pick up on them. So, so this gentleman goes on an amazing treasure quest and finds out that treasure was, you know, basically where his heart is essentially. So it's oh, kind wow. of like just making sure that you do look out for the the keys for wherever they are around you. That's amazing. Yeah, perfect. Okay, where do you go to reset or um, unwind after a big week or a big day? I love to either just go for a walk on the beach. Like I find really it's if I can go for a swim, it's super cleansing. But just the idea of being out there in nature, whether there's a bit of wind, I love it when it rains or when it storms. It's my Mm. favourite. I get really energised when it storms. And mainly because nobody else wants to go out in the rain. Exactly. Rain's going to hurt. It's like, no, rain's so beautiful and that idea of, yeah, just jumping in it, even in the backyard, if it starts raining, it's like, you know what, I'm going to go out, out there. To me, that's a beautiful reset. Do you know one of my favourite cup, the colour combination of like when it's like the dark clouds on the ocean with yes. the like aqua water? It's one of my favourites. It's beautiful. That dark grey mm. is my, or like the purpley grey colour is my mm. absolute favourite colour. Yeah, amazing. Okay, if you could choose one thing that we could change about our education system, what would that be for you? Oh, this is very on point for for you guys. That idea of getting out in nature, getting your hands dirty and having genuine connections in nature. Mm. I really feel, and this is citizen science, this is in the industry I work in and this is uh, for travel, this is absolutely everything, is having hands-on experience, being able to feel the dirt in your hands, feeling the sand, feeling the ocean and being able to experience it 100%. What that actually does is reconnects you to the world around you and I strongly believe that unless you have these genuine experiences, that you won't have a passion to protect what's around you. So I think that's really integral in, in, uh, in the education system. I absolutely agree. And I think that that is the, the cornerstone of what we do. And I think that will lead to more people being taking up a position as a citizen science or working towards, um, you know, being a leader in your area because I've seen you've won a bunch of awards and stuff like that, which is so amazing. So Congratulations on everything that you're building and that you're doing for um, our reefs. We really appreciate the work that you're doing. Where can we find out more about Reef Check and your work? So if you head over to the Reef Check Australia website, it's reefcheckaustralia.org, or you can check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram. They're the ones that we're most passionate about yeah. and we like to kind of showcase what we're doing. But if we have any events, I, there, the diving stuff, you, there is an age limit, but certainly we have family-friendly events and we'd love to see everyone come along whether that's for a cleanup or whether that's for a reef 101 so you can learn a little bit more or a rock pool ramble all of these things we would love to see more people out and about and enjoying our local reef structures so amazing thank you so much for being with us today it has been so great to i love talking anything but marine but yeah knowing ways in which we can make an impact as well so thank you so much today you're welcome and what i would say as well is if you're interested the one other thing that's still it's a bit hot off the press but we do actually have a photo transect training session kind of coming up. And what that is, is that we're doing photos. Usually when we go for a dive, we take some photos. Photo transect, it's much less training. You still need to be a diver or a snorkeler. You take a photo off the reef and then you upload those photos to what's called the reef cloud. And that's through the Australian Institute of Marine Science. And then it's all AI. So the computers start looking at it, but we look at it and verify. So you've got this idea of um, AI coming in to help protect the reef as well, lessening the workload on the human impact, but also making sure there is the human connection. Because as we said, if, if you take divers out of the water, they're not going to be 
interested in what's there. So you don't want to do everything by a computer that's never going to work. No, but you want to use the technology to the best of our ability if we've got ways in which we yeah. can, you know, yeah, exactly. expedite the information that we need. That is really cool. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. So good. So, so lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. We all have the ability to make a difference. And if the world of citizen science is calling you, I would definitely encourage you to check out Reef Check. Um, but also know there are lots of different ways that we can get involved, whether that's um, monitoring frogs or birds. There are plenty of citizen science projects that you can be involved in. Um, I'll add all the links in the show notes at wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash raising wildlings so that you can check out all of the amazing work, work that Reef Check are doing. Um, and if you'd like to be involved as well, they do amazing work, not just in Southeast Queensland but all around the globe and I highly encourage you to support them in any way that you can. Now before I go I just wanted to pop in and say that if you're curious about starting a nature play business or a forest school then you should definitely check out our signature online course Your Wild Business. Now Your Wild Business is a business kickstarter program like you've never seen before. It's specifically designed for teachers, forest school leaders, outdoor recce's, early years educators if you're in that realm, we're here and ready to help you leap into the big wide world of business. If you want to take the guesswork out of starting from scratch, and more importantly, if you want to avoid the three most common mistakes others have made when they've started their nature play business, then you can head to wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash wild dash business and check out our exclusive training to get you started on the right path towards your wild business journey. We'll also share with you our proven seed sprout blossom framework that will help you create a nature play business deeply rooted in community values and purpose so head to wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash wild dash business to check that out now as always i love doing this journey with you so until next time stay wild mm-hmm.